Hey, welcome to The Scrum. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter and I had with Edward Isaac DeVere. He is the author of the new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Peter, we've got this thing going on at GBH News where we're all coming up with our summer book recommendations to share with the general public. And this is the book that you picked before our conversation with DeVere. What was it that made you settle on this particular title as one you think other people should read? It's the most enjoyable political book I've read in four years. And given that I read a bunch of them, I I thought that was noteworthy. It reads almost like a novel, a big, fat Victorian novel with a vast cast of characters, all sorts of plots and subplots. He really made that awful set of primaries come alive in a very meaningful way. And what really struck me about the book at least as I read it, and I think as anyone else reads it, you can't help but reflect continually on the current state of affairs. So like a good historian, he looks backward, but you're always riveted by the relevance for today. That's really well put. I have to admit, I've talked to DeVere in this conversation uh, that we had with him, interviewed him for Greater Boston also. And before I did, the last thing I wanted to do was read a book about the Democratic primary process in the 2020 campaign cycle. And I was stunned to find that I really enjoyed it and that it got me thinking about our current moment, where we're headed, not necessarily optimistically, but you're right. He has some really, really good insights into the arc of the country at this point in time. Yeah. And it is a pretty grim time. And our listeners will find his reflections on our current moment um, sobering. And with that, on to our conversation with Edward Isaac DeVere, author of Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Isaac, you did a magical job of making sense of the chaos that was the 2020 Democratic primaries. As a writer and reporter, how did you do it? And could you give us a sense of the lasting lessons that emerged from those contests? Thank you for for saying uh, magical job. I I don't know. It it was a lot to make sense of. Uh, I remember around this time last year realizing that the primary process was over, but I had expected post Super Tuesday that I'd be spending a lot more time writing. Um, and by June of last year, thought I have not written nearly enough of this thing <laughs> because of all the pandemic craziness. I had been taking notes along the way. I had a bunch of different things that I did. I had a separate notebook uh, and a separate tape recorder that I was doing uh, interviews and uh, reporting on. Uh, I had a Google Doc that I had uh, every day tried to put at least something in uh, to it to capture my sense of what was going on that day or something, some events that I've been covering uh, through the wonders of technology. I used to put in photos that I was taking on my phone back when we were doing events on the trail. So it gave it uh, a freshness to it. And then I have to say uh, the pandemic was really hard in a lot of ways in uh, producing this book, but it also there were some benefits, which is that 
a lot of last summer and fall, many people were just sitting around at home and there were conversations that I got to happen that I'm not sure would have been as accessible otherwise. And uh, I'll leave to your imagination that there were a number of notable people that I spoke with that I don't know I would have been able to reach otherwise. Uh, so it was this concept from the beginning. I started. I signed up to do this book in 2018 that I was going to try to do something a little bit different from the usual campaign book and give a feeling of what it was in the moment to, uh, as these decisions were being made rather than letting people, once it was all done and resolved after the fact, say, oh, this was the smart thing and this was the stupid thing that we did. We're really trying to give that feeling of it and, and talk to the campaigns and the candidates along the way uh, when they were feeling good and when they were feeling bad. As far as the lessons learned from it, I think maybe in like 30 years when people look back on this period in American history and world history, maybe this will all make a little more sense than it does right now. But uh, what what is clear from covering the last four years and then covering this time since the, the book essentially ends on February 2nd, but um, all of what we've seen since then is that this is a really difficult, difficult time for all of us in figuring out what what's going on. And I don't know whether we're going through America's adolescence or its midlife crisis or its uh, beginning of decline. People can come at it with all different ways, but we're definitely going through a lot of changes all at once. And I don't know that anything in politics has caught up to that yet. Joe Biden is the unlikely hero of your book, the guy who beat the odds. Despite the dysfunction of his early campaign, what did he know that escaped the other candidates? I think it's a tricky question because on the one hand, he did have a sense that the electorate was going to respond to things differently than where many of the other candidates were. And he stayed committed to that and the people around him stayed committed to that, whether that was refusing to get drawn in to apologizing all the time for all the things that were looked different in the context of the campaign than they had at the time, stuff around his touching women and whether that was appropriate uh, in 2019 versus when it had happened and sometimes cases years before, uh, or whether it was some of his positions on policy that had not been up to where the mood of the Democratic electorate was. But though that's true, he also, for large stretches of the campaign, was a pretty bad candidate. I think this is part of what I was trying to capture at the book of, of not just looking back after the fact and say, oh, it totally made sense that he should have won. Right. It, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense uh, of how he won. And uh, that's how the book comes together, especially around the point where he's securing the nomination in that period between the South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday. If things hadn't all fit together as they did, I'm not sure he would have been the nominee. It's not like after he came in fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, his campaign got so much better that he came in second in Nevada and then first in South Carolina, and then, of course, had that romp on Super Tuesday. The campaign didn't change that much. There were some things that changed. Uh, he, as a candidate, didn't change almost at all. There were a couple things that changed strategically and tactically that they did. But it was how it all came together. And then, I think importantly, in terms of his presidency, 
where he ended up meeting a moment that, of course, was so far from what anybody could have ever conceived the moment would have been, even a couple of weeks before the coronavirus hit. And certainly when he got into the race in 2019, he couldn't have imagined that things were going like this and would still, uh, even this far into his presidency, look like this. Can you run through some of the inside details of what happened prior to Super Tuesday when a whole mess of candidates decided we're going to drop out and get behind Biden to make sure that he's the nominee? What are some of the things that, that we weren't aware of at the time when that was going on that drove that huge shift? Well, so the two major exits after the South Carolina primary were Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, right, who were both running relatively strong. Buttigieg had come in first in uh, Iowa and second in New Hampshire and was there was a point, and I think it's underappreciated, where he was very, very close to being the nominee. Uh, and Bernie Sanders thought that that was what was going to happen if he didn't move uh, hard. Buttigieg ends up coming in third in Nevada, whereas Biden came in second, both of them far behind Sanders. And that Nevada result was enough to save Biden's uh, behind, basically. Uh, and uh, Buttigieg looks at the reality of Iowa in the caucuses being such a scrambled mess that he didn't get the boost of attention and fundraising that he thought he needed to get through Super Tuesday, uh, be on TV, do all these things in a essentially nationalized campaign. And he looks at the fact that he had never been able to escape this sense that he couldn't connect with black voters, which was true. But I think importantly, it's the, one of the great failings of the Buttigieg campaign, as I point out in the book, which is that every candidate other than Biden was having trouble connecting with black voters. And that goes for Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Deval Patrick, who were the black candidates in the race. But Buttigieg got tagged with it, and he couldn't really escape that as the narrative uh, on him. And so after he got trounced in the South Carolina primary, and he didn't have the money uh, and, and didn't have the attention from uh, what he had been hoping would be his strong start, there just wasn't really a path forward for him. And he makes this calculation that is a very strategic calculation that I think you see him making repeatedly in his political career. The first time that I was really covering Buttigieg was when he was running for DNC chair after the 2016 election. And he pulls out of the DNC chair race uh, 10 minutes before the vote starts. Uh, and he says, oh, he's not going to be a candidate. He was about to get three votes, uh, <laughs> which uh, would have been a very bad showing, but he knew it'd be better to not have that happen. So, okay, that's Buttigieg. And then he decides he wants to have the maximum power. You know, there's the adage uh, that a lot of candidates say about running for president, which is that the best days that you have on the campaign are the day you get in and the day you get out. Uh, and certainly the day you get out is when you have the maximum power. And Buttigieg knew that he could really be a factor in the race if he wanted to uh, endorse Biden quickly, and he did. And he negotiated to have, if you remember, a separate event where it was just the two of them in Dallas the night before the Super Tuesday uh, run. I believe, and it's certainly in modern American history, but I believe in all of uh, presidential history, that's the first time that a candidate with more de primary delegates endorsed somebody with fewer primary delegates. And he endorses Biden, and Biden starts talking about Buttigieg as reminding him of Bo Biden, uh, Biden's late son. That is, uh, for Joe Biden, the highest compliment that he can pay. 
Meanwhile, you have Amy Klobuchar, who was not really ever a strong candidate. It's the tricky thing about her. She was a kind of media creation as a strong candidate because she was the alternative. She was people saying like, okay, well, it's not really working out for Biden and it's not, is Pete Buttigieg really going to work and we don't want Bernie Sanders. We don't want Elizabeth Warren. Okay, it must be Amy Klobuchar. But that got her as far as a third place finish in New Hampshire. That was not going to take her very far. Uh, the race was moving on without her. And she also did really poorly in South Carolina, and there wasn't really a path forward for her. So she decides also that she wants to have maximum impact. And uh, as you may remember, there was a little bit of a grudge match between Klobuchar and Buttigieg during the primary campaign. And she and he are kind of (laughs) trying to figure each other out who's going to endorse Biden first, who's going to get who's going to drop out first. And in the end, Buttigieg dropped out first, but Klobuchar dropped out and then immediately endorsed Biden. And her folks are very proud of that, that she was the first one to make that power move. And that clears the field for Biden in a lot of ways. He also gets the endorsements. That helps. And it moves a couple of specific pieces into his column on Super Tuesday. The biggest one where you see the clearest direct line is that the Minnesota primary is part of Super Tuesday. And Klobuchar threw herself completely into Biden. Her operation was knocking on doors for Biden, doing all this stuff. Uh, and then Biden has that huge Super Tuesday. But then, of course, there's the the week after that, which is really important as Elizabeth Warren decides what to do, too. Let's uh, talk about Kamala Harris. As a candidate, she enjoyed a very early spotlight, but she ran a terrible campaign. Now she's vice president. Do you see any signs of real growth Talk about her future. Uh, Her future is very much up in the air. I have spent some time writing about her start as vice president. And I think that the most notable change is that she is trying to force herself to be patient and to listen and to not get caught up in machinations or politics and in the way that she kept on getting in the middle of when she was running for president and as she was preparing to run for president uh and to just try to learn a little bit from biden what's working for him and and what uh, allows him to connect with voters so much where she has continued to struggle is that she always had an issue when she was running for president uh, that continues in her vice presidency of not engaging in a way that feels true to herself and also really is attention grabbing in ways that are good rather than in ways that are bad. And you see two weeks ago when she was on her trip to Central America and she did that interview with Lester Holt and she was asked, are you going to go to the border? And she sort of laughed it off and she said, no, I haven't been there and I haven't been to Europe either. And it was a really strange answer. And you see that struggle that she has with presenting herself in public and and in coming off in a way that is as engaged and personable as she can sometimes be behind the scenes. And politics is part of it is a presentation. A lot of it is presentation. And she's going to need to figure out how to not have things like that be issues for her as vice president if she does run for president again. And I should say, I don't know anybody who expects that she won't run for president again. She obviously wants the job. She ran for it. She is the incumbent vice president. Incumbent vice presidents tend to run for president. Not all of them do. Dick Cheney didn't. But probably she's going to run for president again. And that's what she'll need to work on as well as distinguishing herself 
on issues that people can really grab onto so she doesn't have this feeling of like she's about everything but not really about anything what do you attribute her uh, you know you, you spent time with her i have not i've only watched her in her big high profile moments but she can come across as almost painfully awkward the laughter at inappropriate times I can't tell when she slips into that mode if she is nervous or if she just has trouble communicating with people in a way that <laughs> in in with the sort of rhythms that most of us take for granted. What's at play there? It's, it's all of that, all of that mixed together. And also a sense of the burden of history that's on her and the spotlight that's on her as the first woman in this job, as the first person of color as vice president. And then it gets mixed up with, in addition to all the things you named, feeling like she's not understood, that people aren't seeing where she's coming from. And she can be a little bit frustrated by that. There's also a sense of having been beaten up uh, in some ways she thinks unfairly, and in some ways I think uh, just kind of objectively speaking unfairly uh, over the years. In a piece that I did a couple of weeks ago uh, for The Atlantic, uh, there was a quote from a woman named Kim Fox, who's the state's attorney in Cook County, which is like the Chicago DA, basically, who is a black woman, first black woman in that job as prosecutor. She would have been mentored by Harris a little bit. And she said to me, uh, we spend a lot of time and attention thinking about people when they break the glass ceilings, but we don't spend as much attention to the cuts they get on their head along the way. And I think that that is actually a very true thing for Harris, too. But she's going to have to figure out some way through it, because uh, though the three of us white guys talking about this uh, may not understand all of it uh, and all the issues that go into it, there will if she runs for president, again, be a time when she's going to need to appeal to people who do have these doubts about all sorts of things. Peter had asked about big lessons from the last campaign. For me, one of the things that, that your book drove home is how slow Democrats were to take Trump and Trumpism seriously back in the 2016 campaign. Then, when he won the election and became president, how slow they were to think that he would actually govern in the way he told us he was going to govern. There was this abiding hope that, okay, he's maybe he's going to change. Maybe the office will moderate him. Maybe he doesn't really mean it. Maybe we can work with him from a whole bunch of people, including at times former President Obama. I'm wondering if 30 years from now, as you said, when we look back at this period, if one of the takeaways might be that as we head into a bad place in terms of our national politics, the people who are in a position to make a difference and to check it aren't willing enough to entertain worst case scenarios. We've got Republican controlled states passing laws that pave the way for overturning the 2024 election if the winner happens to be a Democrat. And the Democrats, to my eye, are really dithering when it comes to responding in an effective way. So is that maybe a takeaway from your book that uh, a big portion of the American political class doesn't take the possibility of really bad things happening seriously, even when it's painfully clear that really bad things are going to happen? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, now, I, I, I think that one of the things that was striking to me, and I, I grew up in New York. I, Donald Trump was part of my atmospheric existence uh, for a long time before he was ever anywhere near politics. When he was running for president in 2016, there was the sense even then, like, oh, he's like a show. It's just a... And I never really had that feeling about it. I don't know if that's from growing up in New York or being a political reporter or whatever. But then it was just continually striking to me when he would do things in office and people would say, like, I can't believe he did this. Like, and starting with the Muslim ban, right? He said he was going to do that. I don't understand why the assumption was, well, he won't ever do that. And that why that assumption stayed in place. And I must say that even as we're seeing... Uh, new details about things toward uh, the end of his presidency, either about handling the pandemic or the attempt of the Justice Department to do interference in the elections or in wiretapping, that he was saying he wanted to do things like this. And so it seems to me like we should take it seriously, what he says, and that we should also take seriously the things that are going on uh, like you said, in the states and all that, these things have consequences. There is a, a, an effect of what happens. Uh, and whether that's Democrats accepting that either they need to do something differently or this will be the law of the land, and um, or it's about everybody grappling with an event that I just don't know how anybody's looked away from it, what happened on January 6th in Washington, which I should say was not the way I was anticipating the book ending, but um, my the final chapters of my book were due on January 4th. Uh, and uh, the last 50 pages of the book, which include the riot and Biden's inauguration and the, the interview with Biden uh, that I did, I was on the phone because of COVID still, and he was in the Oval Office. Uh, th those 50 pages all got conceived of after the book was supposed to be done. But part of what I point out in that section of the book is that the riot was like all of the stuff on social media and Facebook that we dismiss as just being like, oh, the online chatter and Trump like making noise about things like it was real and we're all lucky that it didn't get worse that they didn't find a member of congress to hurt that they didn't try to lynch mike pence because any of that could have happened there's a story in the book from lisa blunt rochester who's the congresswoman from delaware who thinks that she's going to die in the house chamber and she as she is evacuating thinks, if I keep my member pin on that identifies me as a member of Congress, they might come and kill me. But if I take it off, then I'm just a black woman in the Capitol and maybe I won't be protected. That's an astounding thing to be faced with in 2021. And so she decides right, to keep her pin in her hand in a fist so that if she needs to, she can show it to someone very quickly uh, and have the police protect her. We need to wrap our heads around how any of that was possible. And not just move past it. Because it's not just about what happened that day. It's about what all the things that led into that. And I do think that that's about all of the people in politics and government thinking more seriously about it and what the rhetoric is involved and what the laws are involved. But it's also about all of us. And it's about journalists thinking about how we approach this stuff. And it's about every voter and citizen thinking, what kind of country do we really want to be living in? To my eyes and ears, the national political discussion at the moment reminds me a lot of the Democratic primaries. High and impassioned talk about HR1 slash voting rights and infrastructure, 
But failing a congressional Democratic supermajority and faced with the, uh, the perverse Republican obstructionism, how do events play out before the midterm elections? I don't know the answer of that. I, and one of the rules that I gave myself after 2016 was to not make predictions. But I do think what you see here is the reality of the situation, which is what what exactly would you have Democrats do if you support the H.R. 1 for the People Act? when Joe Manchin doesn't, when Kristen Sinema won't move on it. And if you are a Republican, what do you do about the fact that the Democrats have the majority in the Senate? Whatever you think of Joe Biden's politics and policy ideas overall, he has made, I think, a very incontrovertible statement, which is that if government can't work, if democracy can't work, then that's how people give up on democracy. And that there are longer term effects of that uh, that move us, he says, towards authoritarianism. Uh, you see that we need to have government do things for people. It absolutely needs to function. Otherwise, people justifiably lose faith in it. And so Republicans and Democrats, it seems to me, would have a shared mission of trying to figure out something to do. Infrastructure is the kind of thing that we are told every time that's Republicans and Democrats can all agree on this. Well, agree on it. Figure out some way through this rather than it being yet another time where we talk about this for a long time and then nothing happens. And as far as the democratic reforms, the trick here is that it doesn't just become a thing that Democrat campaign on and don't do. But I think to your point of how this is going to play out in 2022, it is absolutely inevitable that every Democrat running for Senate, whoever they are in the country, is going to be campaigning on getting rid of the filibuster. That's going to be part of almost like the, the day that they announce their campaign. As soon as they say, I'm running for Senate, it'll be and I'm against the filibuster. And you've seen that already with some of the people who are announced as candidates. I think you'll also see uh, a push on a couple of these other reform issues. And then they will hope that they get enough uh, seats in the Senate, the Democrats, that they can actually move on this. If they had 53, 54 votes in the Senate, by the way what they were thinking that they were going to have if they'd done better in November, then the, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema wouldn't matter so much. It's because the Democrats didn't do as well as they thought they would. It's because Democrats, and to another point uh, of like takeaways from the book, in the end, the Democratic brand was a lot worse than Joe Biden's own brand, that they, they didn't get to what they needed to do to change the structure of the government. I think if you'd seen 54 votes in the Senate, the filibuster would be gone. There would be a lot of movement on things like uh, statehood for D.C., which is a major structural change that would probably give the Democrats a lasting majority in the Senate, just with how the numbers would be. So uh, in a way, this all becomes about setting up 2022 and it becoming a campaign issue for Democrats, and they see whether they can convince people, I know you voted for a lot of things that didn't happen yet, but just vote for us again and we'll do it this time. Whereas the Republicans will reasonably say, be saying, look, they said they were going to do stuff and it didn't deliver for it. We can try to come back and do these other things for you. They're going to be fighting their own issues about what the reaction is to Trump and, and all sorts of other things. We have a big thing here in Massachusetts about taking pride in presidential candidates who come from the state. What do you think the chances are that the various Massachusetts entrants from last time around, Elizabeth Warren, Deval Patrick, even Seth Moulton, might run again in 2024? And is there anyone else 
from the Massachusetts orbit who we should be thinking about as a possible contender? Uh, I'll answer that anyone else first, I guess, which is I think your governor could potentially be a Republican candidate. I think he'd have a lot of trouble fitting into the National Republican Party. Uh, but he does get talked about outside of Massachusetts uh, <laughs> as as a potential. As far as the Democrats, I think... Duval Patrick is probably done. Uh, that run did not go well at all. Uh, what did he get? 1,200 votes in the New Hampshire primary. It was pretty bad. And I do think that his story, and I touch on this in the book, if he had gotten in when he was initially planning to get in uh, before his wife got cancer, you could see a much different way that that it all played out. I do wonder whether we'll see Patrick in some role in government, uh, in an administration coming forward. There was some chatter, maybe he'd be a good candidate for attorney general or something like that. He obviously wants to serve more, and you could see that. Elizabeth Warren, maybe, 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 if somehow Biden doesn't keep to his promise to run again in 2024, you could see her run again. And you know, I mentioned this briefly, there's a lot in the book about how she made that decision to not endorse Sanders or Biden uh, and what's there, what people knew about already, what people can know about from reading in the book are things that could make it complicated for her to run uh, again because of the awkward situation she finds herself in with the sort of Bernie Sanders flank of the, the party. Moulton is an ambitious young politician. I don't think that he will probably be done in his house seat, uh, but We'll see. Uh, and then we've got a, a, some some of the congressional delegations really old, right? And some of it is now really young. And so we'll see what some of these people, what comes to them. I also don't know that Joe Kennedy is gone from politics. Uh, and there's, at the end of the book, a little bit of an exploration of like what that Senate primary tells us about what the future holds for Democrats, which I think is really important to think about and that I talked to Kennedy for. And you can see him thinking about what it means for him. Look, he's 40 years old. Or I guess it's about to be 41. Uh, he's ambitious. He's a Kennedy. He's pretty good at what he does. Will he never run for anything again? It's conceivable, but I think we all sort of expect he will. I know you don't like predictions, but what does history tell you about the Democrats holding on to the House of Representatives? History says that it's really hard for the party that holds the White House to do well in midterm elections, but history also tells you this, that the times that it has happened are 1934, I believe, right, in the middle of uh, the when FDR was getting everything set from the Depression. 1962, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Kennedy was trying to reassure the public that things were going to be okay. And in 2002, when George W. Bush was still responding to September 11th and, and everything that had happened then. So the point is, times of crisis tend to actually rally behind the president's party. That's good news for the Democrats, theoretically. Bad news for the Democrats, good news for the Republicans, is uh, the gerrymandering will almost certainly be in Republicans' favor. And uh, there are a lot of questions about where we are on the pandemic and the economy and, and all these things. If a year from now the pandemic is mostly faded and uh, the economy is getting into good shape, that'll be good news for Joe Biden and the Democrats. If not, 
I don't know. Uh, if the Democrats can get pull off some of the things that Biden wants to have happen in Congress that we were talking about, that'll give them a message to say, look, we delivered for people. But I don't know if, if it's also effective for them to say we're running on doing these things finally. So I, I think it's a jump ball where things go at this point. And I think the Republicans have a lot of issues that they need to sort out. The biggest one is what role does Donald Trump play? Isaac DeVere, thank you for talking with us about your truly excellent book. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this was great. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Please subscribe to us if you haven't. Rate us if you have a few minutes and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer Zoe Matthews is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter Kadzis, you are at Kadzis, capital K-A-D-Z-I-S. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. We will talk to you again soon.